turn to Mark chapter 3. <clears throat> Mark chapter 3. It is fascinating and encouraging, just constantly the reminders that we get from Scripture and from life about who our God is. I I can vividly remember growing up and thinking when the movie 2001 A Space Odyssey came out and uh, reading Big Brother George Orwell's book at 1984 was going to be such a, a crazy year and just seeing, man, that stuff just seems so far-fetched and so out there, and then you look back and it just, remember Y2K in 1999, that was it, you know, the plane's going to drop from the sky and nothing was going to work and we're still trucking along, And but the fascinating thing, one of the things that's so encouraging to me as a believer, and I hope it is to you, that whether it's January 1st, 2017, 18, 19, 2020, Whatever it might be, until Jesus comes back, we are the chosen generation for this moment in time to proclaim the gospel. We pour ourselves into our children, in my case, grandchildren, and others, peers, many times, and take the opportunity to to live the gospel and teach the gospel and be the hands and feet of Jesus Christ, that this part of the church age which began when Jesus came the first time and will end when he comes back the second time. And the fascinating thing again about that is for this moment in the church age, we're going to look at that in in just a moment, we are the church. We are the institution that Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. That's us. We are Church means the ecclesia is the word, means the called out ones. We're going to see in a moment what Jesus was doing. As we studied in the Gospel of Mark, Mark's entire focus was on the public ministry of Jesus Christ. What he came to do as the servant Savior. What he came to do was to live, to serve, to live the perfect sinless life as the God-man Christmas, Emmanuel, God with us, God in the flesh, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, that God himself, the second person of the Trinity, became God the Son, became God the man, and we saw the perfect man. He came, he lived, he died for us and for our world. And so then he says to us, the called out ones, the ecclesia, the church, his body, his bride, believers, says now you go into all the world and make disciples of me. Teach them all the nations, not just the Jews, but everybody. Teach them what I've taught you and I will always be with you. So whether it's January 1st, 2017, Or January 2nd, 2017. One of the greatest things you can do looking forward to a new year is to realize that every day in 2017 is a new opportunity for you to fulfill the Great Commission. God expects you simply to be 
a disciple of Jesus Christ, where you are. Tomorrow, whatever you find yourself doing, when you're back at work this week, or you're watching a football game, or you're at a basketball game, or you're doing whatever you do today, whether you're maybe doing things with family, or tomorrow, whatever's going on, that God said to you, to me, as individual believers within the body, and to the body as a whole, go into all the world. So if you'll take your hand out and look, here's where we are. We've been looking at this particular focus is on the servant savior. The gospel of Mark is about the servant savior. He came to serve and to die. And so we've been looking at, number one on your handout, the popularity of Jesus Christ or the servant savior. We dealt with, prior, we took a few weeks off, the pressure of his fans. It would be in Mark chapter 3, starting in verse 7. We dealt with that. Where we are now is that second part there. We're looking at the plan for his followers. That's really what our focus is going to be today. We're going to focus on these two being a new year. We're going to focus on these two new things that Jesus was doing. And understand what he's beginning here, what he's instituting at this moment in time in history when God walked the planet as he was headed to the cross. What he is doing is establishing that this is not all new. For example, Christmas Eve, right here in this very room, many of us celebrated the Lord's Supper together. And the great passage on the Lord's Supper, Jesus says, this is the new covenant in my blood. Everybody in the room was Jewish. They understood the old covenant was of the blood of bulls and goats, the Mosaic covenant. Jesus said, that's over with. This is the new covenant. I have come to fulfill the old. And the entire book of Hebrews is about that subject, that you no longer need the old because you have the new. So Jesus said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Covenant simply means a solemn vow, a commitment that Jesus made to us. And when we're born again, we make with him. We enter into a covenant relationship. Marriage is a covenant relationship. You exchange marriage vows. You make solemn promises to each other before God and witnesses that I will, I do these things. I promise. So Jesus said, it's a new covenant in my blood. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is 2 Corinthians 5, 17, where Paul says, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things are passed away. All things are become new. And it literally means that you get a new set of eyes. The relationships are the same. If I get saved today, I'm still married to the same person, but my life has changed. I am to be different. I'm in Christ. I now look at that spouse differently. Children, friends, business, all relationships. In Christ, I become a new creature. So as we think about a new year, understand what Jesus was instituting here. The plan for his followers. We talked at great length about the fans that were that were just the incredible crowds that would flock to him, wanting a touch from Jesus, wanting a healing from Jesus, wanting an exorcism from Jesus, wanting Jesus to do something for them. 
And there are a lot of people still preaching that today, that the only reason you come to Jesus is to get your miracle of something physical, temporal, maybe even having to do with money. Sow this seed and God will guarantee you this much in return. It's all about me. I want this help. I want this wealth. I want God to do this for me. What Jesus wants us to understand is I'm interested in instituting something that's brand new. Brand new. And fans, you're going to see over the next couple of weeks, they don't get it. To them, Jesus is something to use when you need him. Benefit you only. But Jesus said, out of the fans, I'm going to call a small group. The followers. I got a plan for them. That would change the world because it's nothing like what anyone else has to offer because I am God. What I offer is brand new, totally different than anything they will understand. So let's begin to look at that new plan. Look at verse 13. In the context leading up to this, we've seen that Jesus, these, these crowds are pressing upon him and he withdraws and brings his disciples, small group, to him out of the thousands upon thousands that are flocking to him. He gets alone with the small group. Do not miss that point contextually, historically, and in our lives today applicably. It's really important that we understand that God works in the lives of individuals. God works through small groups. God can work in a huge group, but the change lives, the lives that persist, that continue, and continue to change historically, are always done in small settings, individual lives, sitting down one-on-one, sharing the gospel, living the gospel, being real. So he says to him, starting in verse 13 of chapter 3, he went up on the mountain and he called to him those, they called to him those he himself wanted And they came to him. He appointed 12 that they might be with him. He might send them out to preach. So here's his plan for his followers. Number one, that plan is I'm creating a new nation, a new age. In Luke chapter 6, in a parallel, don't turn there, in a parallel passage, the Bible says this. It came to pass in those days that he, Jesus, went out to the mountain to pray. And he continued all night in prayer to God. Now that verse, Luke 6, 11 and 12, there it's verse 12. It says, he continued all night in prayer to God. Now, verse 13 of Mark again. Please look at it. Mark three thirteen. And he went up on the mountain and he called to himself those he wanted and they came to him. That verse we just looked at in Luke, and again, very important to see this. That verse we just looked at in Luke, that's what Jesus did the night before this historical moment where he's beginning to send out call and what he's going to do in the lives of the 12 and then send them out. He spent all night in prayer. Please don't miss that. The Bible tells us, 1 Thessalonians, we are to pray without ceasing. We ought to be people of prayer. Hank Hanegraaff calls praying, firing the winning shot. It's important, it's significant, and we need to remember that and understand it, that God expects us to be people who pray. Does it mean you have to go to every prayer meeting that's scheduled? Of course not. 
but it means that in your life, prayer should be just like breathing to you. How often do you just talk to God? Not necessarily asking him for anything, just thanking him, praising him, seeking his face, seeking his will, asking for God to work in and through you and your family, your church, where you are. Jesus was about, again, if he, if Jesus needs to spend all night in prayer prior to a significant moment in his life, how much more so do we need to pray? All night. So then he calls the 12. Now verse 14. He appointed 12 that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach. And the, the Greek phrase there is, when it says appointed, the literal word means he made. He made. And the point is this. He had a plan for these 12 guys. We're going to talk more about them in a moment. He had a plan for these 12 guys. He was going to mold them into what he, Jesus, wanted them to be. In your prayer life and in my prayer life, the number one thing you should pray is, God, I want to be what you want me to be. Not what I want to be, not what my wife wants me to be, although that would be a good idea, man, it can't hurt. Not what someone else wants me to be, some peer group, some whoever. I need to be, God, I want to be what you want me to be. I want to be right in the center of your will. You made me. Don't ever try to be somebody else. Be who you are. Peter was talking about my CD, and it's magnificent. No. You don't want to hear me sing, but I sure like to hear Peter sing, don't you? I told you, some of you, my Christmas City story, when we went out there on the 23rd, and the guy asked Beth if she ever sang at church. And she said, well, yeah. He said, well, would you like to sing with me? So she gets the microphone, and you've heard Beth sing, and she has a beautiful voice that she got from me. Okay, somewhere else. And she starts to sing with Mr. Lonnie, who runs Christmas City, runs the camp, and it's beautiful. And he gets through, and he says, do you ever sing at church, or do you go to church? She goes, yeah, I go to Christ Church in Arlington. And I'm standing right beside her. He said, you go to Christ Church in Arlington? Miracles happen at Christmas City all the time. So he says, well, you need to tell your pastor to let you sing at church. And she goes, you're telling me standing right here. <laughs> and he asked, he said, how long have you been coming to Christmas City? And Beth looks a little young, younger than she is. And he said, how long have you been coming to Christmas City, young lady? She said, 31 years. Now, I love to hear Beth sing. I love to hear Mary sing. I love, uh, Mary's, uh, we have a piano in our house. She just sits at the piano and plays uh, old hymns and sings. And I, I love to hear that. Now, do you don't want me to sit at the piano unless you just want it cleaned? You don't want me playing the piano? You don't want me singing? But that's the way God, that's the gift she has. It's a talent she has. Peter has talent. Beth has talent. I had different gifts. And what I need to be is who God wants me to be. That is incredibly significant in your life. Whether you're young or whether you're old, God knew about you before he created the universe and he made you the way he, he wants you to be. And it doesn't mean that you should, should say, if, if there's something in you that's, that's rude, offensive, that's sin, yeah, you need to work on that and you need to get that out of your life. That's not what I'm talking about. 
I need to understand God works in my life as he sees fit. And he moves and the, and the things in my life and my past that were difficult. God doesn't want me to dwell on those. God wants me to use those to benefit others now. Just yesterday, you never know how God's going to do things. Uh, Friday, I went down to Senatobia, I'm sorry, Hernando, Mississippi, to do a wedding for my second cousin. And I don't see my first cousin. We grew up together, but I don't see her very often. She's the same age I am. She called me and asked me to do her son's wedding. And I went down there Friday to do it. And just being down there and seeing my cousin again, she's had a very difficult time in her life. And it gave me an opportunity. All I did was to go down there to do the wedding. But it gave me an opportunity just to sit and put my arm around my cousin. We grew up together. They lived in Whitehaven. We lived in East Memphis. And just to put my arm around her, and because she, she has some, some issues and some problems, and just tell her that I love her and share with her how God could change your life. You never know where God's going to put you. What you do know is he puts you. And so my prayer, your prayer, should be, number one, God, I want to be exactly what you want me to be. And God, I want to hallow your name. I want people to see you. That was Jesus' plan for these 12 guys. Now, they didn't know it all yet. It's we're going to see as you go through the gospel. In many ways, they're clueless. And I love that because God calls the clueless like me and you. But ultimately, he clues us in so that we can go do what he wants us to do. And these 12 guys did it. It's fascinating to see the hand of God. So notice verse 14. Jesus is creating a new nation. Verse 14, he appointed 12. He's going to mold them. Now, the number 12 is significant. Numbers are always significant in the Bible, but in this particular case, context, understand why. The number 12 is used 22 times in the book of Revelation alone, and it means the perfection of how God rules. So these 12 guys that Jesus calls and he's going to make into what he wants them to make, what nationality are these 12 men? They are Jews. Every one of them is Jewish. So here's Jesus' point to them. It's a brand new thing, because in the mind of these Jews, these guys, their ancestors going all the way back to Moses, in their mind, Going all the way back really to Abraham. The Messiah, the Christ, was going to come and set up his kingdom where? On earth for what group of people? For Jews. And Jesus is saying to them, I got something brand new. It's not the 12 tribes of Israel. It's 12 disciples of the Messiah who's for everybody. The church will be neither Jew nor Gentile, as Paul put it. So this number 12 is significant. That's what the church age is about. In Matthew 19, Jesus said these words, Truly I say to you, that you have followed me in the, in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne. You also shall sit upon 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or children or farms for my name's sake to glorify God 
shall receive many times as much and shall inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. This is the new nation that he's talking about. It's not a Jewish nation. It's the church. Both Jews and Gentiles that will reign with Jesus Christ and will judge with him the 12 tribes of Israel to teach them. Matthew writes to Jews. So Matthew puts it that way, that they're going to reign and rule with Jesus over the Jews. Being a Jew, Jesus is saying, is no more significant than being a Gentile. It's about are you in relationship with the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior. In Matthew 21, he says this, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you to the Jews. Matthew writes to Jews. The kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. Not a Jewish nation, but a nation that's spiritual. Keep going. First Peter. Peter, who was right here in Mark 3 in the room. Peter, James, and John, one of Jesus' three closest followers. First Peter chapter 2, Peter writes these words. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Whether you're a Jew or whether you're a Gentile, you're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy set-apart nation, his own special people. With this goal, with this calling, with this mission, that you proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's the church. That's the church. That we're floundering around Jew and Gentile, that we're floundering around in the dark, and then Jesus saves us and sets us free one at a time, one at a time, And then we get to go out and proclaim the praises of the one who called me out of darkness into that incredible light, set me free from the power of sin and death. I don't have to fear it. That's the nation we are, his own special people, a royal priesthood. I love that phrase. Here's why. Depending on the background in which you grew up, so many people think that if you've got the title reverend, or pastor, or priest, that that automatically makes you closer to God than the average lay person. I hate that term. No, it doesn't. I hope you understand this. And if nothing else, make this new for you for 2017. If you're born again, you carry the title priest. You are a priest in the world in which you live. A believer priest, that's the term to describe Christians. You are a saint, according to the Bible, if you're born again. You are a priest. You represent the God of gods, the the great I am. You are his ambassador, according to Paul. You're an ambassador, you're a priest, you're a saint. You're very special. His own special people. He calls us, he saves us. He sends us out to represent him as an ambassador and as a priest. 
your prayers are significant. Mine are no more significant than yours. The Pope's prayers are no more significant than yours. If you're born again, you're a priest. And we need to understand that high privilege, that calling on your life. You are a Christian. John chapter 1, the Bible says this. The great opening prologue of John. He, Jesus, came into his own, or the word came into his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. What that means is he came into his own things, but his own people, the Jews, did not receive him. But, please don't miss this, as many as received him, to them he gave the right, and that means authority, to become, one, children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Those of us who trust and believe in Christ, we are his, God's children. We were born not of blood, not because we're, we have Jewish blood, has nothing to do with it, nor of the will of flesh, has nothing to do with man's idea, nor of the will of man, man but of God. He saved us. And the word, the incarnate word, became flesh. Christmas dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father. That's what we celebrate. It's new. Now go back to verse 15 of Mark 3. Notice, verse 14. Notice, here's a summary of Jesus' plan for his followers. Then and today. Verse 14. He appointed 12. Notice, here's his purpose for the 12. That they might be with him, that he might send them out to preach and to have power to heal sicknesses and to cast out demons. Now, one is historical. They did that. Please note, don't miss the overall plan, the summary, verse 14. Notice the two things. True then, true now, verse 14. Number one. He appoints the 12. He's going to make the 12, number one, spend time with him. Spend time with him. Relationship. Get to know him. Be still and know that I'm God. Jason Crosby says it this way. God will take you as deep with him as you want to go. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So if there's, a, if there's a flaw, if there's a weakness in my relationship with my father, whose fault is it? It's mine. He's there, always. So Jesus said, number one, my plan for you, my followers, spend time with me. Acts 4, I love this story, says this. The Jew, Jews have got Peter and John, they brought them up for their preaching. Here's what the, the Bible says. When they, the Jews, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. What set Peter and John apart? What made them stand out to the Pharisees and the Jews? 
Why, why were they able to do what they were able to do? Because they had been with Jesus. Because they had been with Jesus. Yes, they raised people from the dead and they performed incredible miracles. But just because you're not going to walk up to somebody today and raise them from the dead does not mean that what you do is not as, as significant as what the apostles did. It is. It has to begin, however, with you spending time with Jesus. Two-pronged plan. We are be sent out. Verse 14, second point. Number one is be, spend time with him. Secondly, verse 14, that he might, Jesus, send them out to preach. Send them out to preach. That's where we get the word apostle from, right there. That's what that phrase sent out means. The word, English, apostle, sent out one. In the culture that we live in today, in the 21st century, read an article about it a couple of weeks ago, says the following. 60% of Americans believe that trying to convert someone else is extreme. Quote, being a Christian when society thinks you're irrelevant and extreme. 25% of churchgoers, 25% of people who go to church, tell someone else about their faith on an average two times a year. How do we respond to our culture? Well, there are different ways Christians respond. Many Christians just simply isolate themselves from the culture. They never find themselves around people who aren't Christians. They only spend time with believers. How are they going to hear the gospel if you're not out there among them? And I guarantee if you have a job, you work with somebody who's not saved. Probably in your own family, there are people who don't know Christ. But so many times we just kind of isolate ourselves from the culture. Or we insulate ourselves from it, just kind of whatever we got to do to build the walls, us versus them. A lot of times we just try to imitate the culture and just fit in, but yet never preach the gospel. There's a church I read about this, this a couple of weeks ago, and their motto is to, quote, live sent. Live sent. In other words, as we live every day in our culture, we understand we're the sent ones. We're the sent ones. We're the church. Jesus put it this way. You're salt and light. Salt is a preservative. Light is something that people are drawn to. The church is Christ in us. We are to be in our culture, infiltrating it, being part of it, so that they can see the real Christ. Not who they think he is, not some maybe they've seen preachers on TV or wherever they've seen them. Maybe they've had a bad experience in church. I guarantee you, we could go around the room here. And many of you, over the years, or somebody in your family has had a bad experience with at church. Many times from leaders. But that's not Jesus that did that. Those people that did that. That's why it's so important for you and for me to be in our culture and be light in our culture, to be salt in our culture so people can understand it's new. It's a brand new thing that Jesus is doing. It's not what you think it is. Now, verse 15, 
He sends us out to preach and to have power. That word means authority to heal sicknesses and cast out demons. Just to understand whether that's going on or not. And he can do that. That's his decision. But we go out. We go out as the church in the authority of Jesus Christ. He alone does miracles. But the greatest miracle we can share with anyone, we talked about this before, was the life-changing effect Jesus Christ can have in saving you, translating you from darkness to light, giving you hope, peace, joy, a reason for living, understanding love for the first time. He loved us. That's how we know love. He first loved us. Now look at verse 16. I love this part of this new nation. Remember the, the 12 he's going to make. Not the thousands. He picks the 12. He has a lot of people wanting to follow him, but he picks 12 apostles. Now, look at who he picks. And by the way, this list is not just haphazard. It's important the way it's done. So let's look at it. Verse 16. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boerganes, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. And they went into a house. So here's the 12. We obviously know the story of Judas. We'll talk more about that later. But when you see these lists, there's four times in the New Testament you'll see this. Peter is always listed first. He's given the name Rock by Jesus Christ. He's the leader, and there's a, there are a lot of reasons for this. But let me just give you the one I think that's the most important. He becomes the leader of the church when it's at Jerusalem. He's always listed first. Every time you see that in your circle, it's Peter, James, John. But Peter's name is always first. And he becomes the leader of the church after Jesus dies, comes back from the dead, and after the ascension, when the church was at Jerusalem, Acts 1 through 7, Peter is its leader. When Jesus needed Peter the most, what did Peter do? Let him down, didn't he? Failed him miserably. I don't know. He denied him three times, cursed him. I don't know who you're talking about. I don't know the man. He was afraid of a little servant girl. He was afraid of the Romans. He was afraid of the Pharisees. He wasn't the rock that Jesus wanted him to be, was he? I hope you don't miss that. Do you ever think you're not what Jesus wants you to be? If they'd had a meeting after that night and said, let's decide who's going to run things, would Peter have been the choice? No. And you remember at the end of John, the book of John is such a poignant scene they're fishing and they come and Jesus meets them there and he asked Peter three times, what? Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Can you imagine what was going on in Peter's inner being at that moment? When Jesus asked him three times, do you love me? And then after each time, Peter responds, I love you. Now Jesus asked him, do you love me with Agape, sacrifice. Peter answered, I love you, phileo, you're my friend. 
Jesus want friendship or he want sacrifice? He wanted sacrifice. But after he asked him each time, Jesus said, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Tend my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Jesus had a plan for Peter. He was going to mold him, use him, and he did not give up on him. Please don't forget that. You're not perfect. I'm not perfect. But what I know is when God saved you, you're a sent one, and he wants to use you. And yes, you're going to let him down. How do I know you're going to let him down? Because you're not perfect. But don't give up. He's not going to give up on you. So don't give up on him. Pray. Talk to him. Fix the relationship. If you're married and you have a fight with your spouse, now I know none of you ever do that. What do, you, do you just give up? What do you do? You go fix it, don't you? If you're a man, you just go in there and say, it's all my fault. I'm sorry. Right? I told my, little, my second cousin when I was doing his wedding Friday, I said, look, man, you only got to learn one thing. Just learn to say, yes, dear, and keep that mouth shut. You're going to be all right. Yes, dear. You work it out. You don't give up. Why would you give up on the greatest relationship any human being can ever have? That of Christian, child of God, an ambassador for Jesus Christ, son of the king, a joint heir with Jesus Christ. Go through the New Testament sometime. You want to get excited, we'll find you up on your roof after you do this Bible study. You go through the New Testament sometime and just write down every descriptive phrase that says you are a Christian. And look at how God views you. You'll be some kind of excited when you get through and read that list. Overcomer. One who perseveres. One who endures. God's own special his child, his beloved, on and on. As a grandfather, you know, I, lo- I, I love my grandchildren. I get to, when I get to see them and, and spend time with them or FaceTime with the ones that do that. And just, I love just being a grandfather. And the Bible says, if I as an earthly father know how to give good gifts to my children, how much more Does your heavenly father know? How much more? So you see this list of guys. See Peter. Then you see James and John, the other part of the inner circle. They're given the name sons of thunder because they were selfish. If you read through, they even bring their mama in to try to get her to sway Jesus, to give them the the good seats in the kingdom. They had loud mouths. When one instance they wanted to call down fire, they wanted Jesus to call down fire from heaven on the Samaritans. These weren't the kind of guys you would think, all right, they need to be in the upper seats of authority. Jesus was going to change them, wasn't he? They go from this to leaders. John describes himself as a disciple whom Jesus loved. And what he meant by that was, I cannot believe he loved me. I didn't deserve it. 
If you read John or 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, the theme of every one of them is love, love, love. For God so loved the world. This is love. This is how we know love over and over because he spent that time with Jesus and the thing he came out of it with was, wow, that's love. At the cross, when Jesus says to him, make sure you take care of my mom. Wow. Love. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Wow. Love. He saw it. He experienced it. And then he lived it. And you see Simon the Canaanite in that list. Again, these things are important. Simon the Canaanite. He was what was called a zealot. A zealot was a Jew. They were Jewish extremists who had vowed in their lives to overthrow Rome by whatever means it took, including murder. Josephus, a Jewish historian, described the zealots this way. They were the dagger men. Whatever it took, if they had to stab you in the back, they would do that as a Roman. So what you notice here in this list, who is Jesus picking to be the 12 that's going to change the world. Common, ordinary men who would have had personality conflicts with each other. Not perfect. Men are going to struggle, yet Jesus is going to mold them. He's going to shape them into the apostles. For example, example Simon the Zealot that we just talked about, what would have been his opinion of Matthew, who worked with the Romans? As a Jew, tax collector. Would he have liked Matthew? Would they have hung out together, played golf together, traveled together with the destined and stuff? Probably not. He would have hated him. Jesus said, I'm going to bring them together. I'm going to mold them. That's the beautiful thing about the church. Is that Jesus makes the decisions, not us. It's not a popularity contest. It's what does Jesus want? Jesus, where do you want me? Where do you want us? What do you want us to do? What do you want me to do? And then we go do it. You don't see any rabbis in this group. You don't see any of the religious elite in this group, do you? You see common, ordinary men that God is going to change miraculously. And then the book of Acts tells us they went out and turned the world upside down for the gospel. Look back at verse 14 again. What is their job? Spend time with Jesus and then go out and preach the gospel. So here's Jesus' plan. Small group of committed followers who are to go and make disciples of all the nations because the church will be diverse. When you read about the church in Revelation, it talks about the end. One of the ways it's described is like this. From every tongue, nation, tribe, and family on earth. Does that sound like Jews only to you? How many of you are Jewish? Aren't you glad that these guys went out and did what Jesus told them to do? I know I am. That Paul came on the scene, Jesus changed him radically on the road to Damascus, and he took the gospel to the Gentiles, our ancestors, that he did it, that these guys did it. 
It's a brand new thing he was creating. A brand new thing. I'm going to hit one more thing that we're going we're to stop today. Just one more point. Look at verse 20. The multitude came together again so that they could not so much as eat bread. But when his own people heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him, for they said, he's out of his mind. Between verse 19 and verse 20, we're going to deal with this next week, but I want to set it up for you. You notice the next thing on your outline is, it's a brand new nation I'm creating, and it's a brand new family. Now, between verse, you might want to make this note if it's in your study Bible, you can do it. It really helps you put the the New Testament together. Between verse 19 and verse 20, Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount. The greatest sermon ever preached. Matthew 5, 6, 7. You can go read it. He preaches the Sermon on the Mount. And then you come to verse 20, you got the great multitude, so, so many they can't even eat. And in verse 21, his own people heard about this. They went out and laid hold of him, for they said, he's out of his mind. Verse 21, out of his mind. His own people were friends and family members. Please don't miss that. We're going to talk about that in detail next week. But here's the point. The plan for my life as a Christian, is God's doing a brand new thing and I get to be in on it. I'm a Christian. I'm called. I'm sent. And even my family on earth may not understand me. But who has to be more important to me? My, to me, my family on earth or Jesus? That's a tough thing for many people. A tough thing When I got saved at age 16, even though my mom and I went to church, we weren't Christians in our family. And that was almost 47 years ago. And there are a lot of people in my family that just, Randy's that he's the preacher in our family. That's it. I had no relationship with my dad at that time. But what God gave me was a heavenly father to fill in that gap. And in time, at the end of his life, I had a relationship with my dad. But all that interim, I had my heavenly father. What we're going to see next week, it's just a brand new nation. The highest call on my life is that I am a Christian. And nothing is more important than being part of that nation. Nothing, including my earthly family, can have higher priority than Jesus Christ. Would you bow your heads, please? Lord, as we begin to to close out today and think about a brand new year, 2017, we're going to hear theologians and people all over the place saying, The time is near. Jesus is coming back. Well, they've been saying that for a long time. The early church thought Jesus was coming back in their lifetime. Lord, all we know is that he is coming back. It may be in our lifetime. It may not. 
And that really doesn't matter. That's your business. Our business is to go. So, Lord, I pray for, as Christians, you would motivate us to do two things. Spend time with Jesus Christ individually. And even like we hear what we do corporately and in small groups. But, Lord, individually, spend that time talking to you in your word, growing so that we spend time and then go preach. We grow and then we go. Because if we don't, we're not, we're not the church. So, Lord, you motivate us. 20, make 2017 just an exciting year for us every day to be an ambassador for Jesus Christ because we're part of that new nation, that special nation, his own special people. We thank you, Father, that as Christians, we're part of that nation. And we just pray you would encourage us, move us to tell other people about Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Please stand as we sing. And I'll be down here if you'd like somebody to pray with you.